It's 8.30pm on the 9th of March 1966 in London's East End and George Cornell is enjoying a pale ale in The Blind Beggar in Whitechapel. The air in the pub hangs heavy with the cigarette smoke and mumbled conversations of the small handful of punters inside. George smiles as the barmaid puts a tune on. There's no jukebox, but the old record player does the job. The Walker Brothers hit, The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore, is her track of choice. You'll be forgiven for thinking it sounds like a perfect evening, but you'd be very wrong. You see, 1960s London is ruled by brutal and ruthless gangs. George himself is a well-known member of the Richardson Gang, also known as the Torture Gang, thanks to their proclivity for pulling people's teeth with pliers or cutting off toes with bolt cutters. While the Richardsons are untouchable on their home turf, this is the Cray Brothers Gang's base, and George isn't welcome. Identical twins Reggie and Ronnie Cray have a reputation for sadistic violence that's the stuff of legend. Their so-called firm rules the East End with a vice-like grip of fear and intimidation. The Cray twins fear no one, but everyone fears them. And they hate the Richardson gang. In fact, only last night the Crays and Richardsons clashed violently in a club in South London called Mr. Smith's. The fight ended with one of the Crays men, Dickie Hart, being shot dead. Dickie was a distant cousin of the Crays. His death will not go unpunished. And yet here's George Cornell, bold as brass, enjoying a pint with some mates in The Blind Beggar. He should be nervous, but George is not scared of a scrap with the Cray twins. He may be a Richardson man now, but at one stage he'd been in with the Crays. Alongside his mates, mad Frankie Fraser, he is now used by the Richardsons as a so-called enforcer and often finds himself in talks with the notorious brothers. Perched on his stool, sipping his ale, and chatting to a couple of friends, George doesn't even glance at the door as it swings open, sucking a trail of smoke out into the night air. It's only when his mates hurriedly excuse themselves, slipping off to hide in the gents, that he looks across, already guessing that their exit is a bad sign. Sure enough, the broad-shouldered, psychotically powerful Ronnie Cray is striding towards him, looking for all the world like a Hollywood gangster plucked from the silver screen. His thick, gold-rimmed glasses are perched on his bulbous ex-boxer's nose. His black hair is greased and neatly parted. His suit is pristine, right down to the spats on his shoes, and he wears an impressive tan coat which hangs below his knees. At the bar, George does his best to play it cool. He's been confronted by Ronnie Cray several times before, and there certainly isn't any love lost between them. In fact, not many months before, George called Ronnie a fat puff in front of a room full of gangsters. He probably signed his death warrant in that one act. Now George lowers his pints and cocks his head to the side as Ronnie and his associate Ian Barry approach menacingly. Offering a sardonic smile, George says, Well, look who's here. And those are his last words, because Ronnie lifts his heavy 9mm pistol level with George's head and without flinching, pulls the trigger, shooting him at close range. 
The bullet hits George high in the forehead, above his right eye, and passes straight through. Without a word, Ronnie turns and walks back out of the bar as George slumps forward, head landing with a thud on the beer-soaked wood. Ian Barry stands in the middle of the room, raises his own gun and fires several shots into the ceiling, warning everyone there, including the barmaid, not to breathe a word of this to anyone. With George Cornell slumped over the bar, his pint glass stained with a spray of his own blood, no one's going to argue. Somehow the needle on the record player is stuck, and the song is jumping. The sun ain't going to shine anymore, anymore, anymore. For George Cornell, that much is certainly true. His murder at the hands of one of London's most notorious gangsters is etched in history. Not only is Ronnie Cray's first kill, but is the act that eventually leads to the dismantling of the Cray's tyrannous firm. But that is a long story. So settle in. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers, as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Given the relative lawlessness on the streets of gang-ruled London in the 1960s, Police in the capital is a mix of tenacity, luck, and pure, dogged determination. Police standards are a matter of personal choice, rather than one of governance. Though most officers of the law are good men, there are some who will take payoffs from criminals for looking the other way, or for providing an early warning. The Cray twins, along with their followers and enforcers, have a list of their violent criminal offences that is ever-growing. Everyone knows what they're made of and what they're capable of, which means that finding a cop both dedicated enough and tough enough to bring them down is a hard task. But the detectives of Scotland Yard are cut from a different cloth, and when they set their sights on a target, it's only a matter of time until they get their man. Or will this be the time when crime really does pay? Back at the blind beggar, 
poor George Cornell is quickly dispatched to the local hospital, where doctors later pronounce him dead. By the time the police arrive to investigate, the once full bar has emptied of patrons, and with them, all hope of a sensible witness has faded into the ether. Even the barmaid claims she didn't see who shot George. The two men with him slipped out the back before police even arrived, having wiped their prints from their glasses. The only customer still in the pub is an old man who had been quietly nursing a pint while reading his newspaper. He tells police that he's seen Ronnie walking in, but refuses to comment on whether he pulled the trigger. When asked why he won't help put Ronnie Cray away, he simply says, I don't like the sight of blood, especially my own. Of course, the fact that witnesses disappear in situations like this is not unusual to the investigating officers. The Crays enforce silence through fear and intimidation. They've been known to cut, beat and torture people into silence. This is typical behaviour for all the gangs and the Crays are not necessarily any more violent than their rivals. The difference is those they rule over show a certain loyalty to them. The Crays make sure to pay people off, ensuring their support. The East End is a very poor and deprived area, and on balance, most agree they are better off with the twins in charge. No one's willing to bite the hand that feeds them by grasping to the police. Faced by a now familiar wall of silence, with nothing but unsubstantiated rumours that it was Ronnie Cray who executed George Cornell, police have to back down. For now. Meanwhile, having left the pub and climbed back into the waiting Mark I Ford Cortina, Ronnie Cray is hyped up. I shot him. I actually shot him, he tells the driver. Despite their countless acts of sadistic violence, it's the first time either of the brothers has committed murder in cold blood. Ronnie hot-foots it to the Lion Pub on Tap Street, just half a mile away from the blind beggar, where brother Reggie is drinking with some of the firm. When Reggie finds out what's happened, he jumps up and tells the assembled gangsters to leave the area. They're going to need to cover their backs and regroup before the police come knocking. The gathered henchmen all make their exits. In a variety of cars, via a number of different routes, they reconvene in a back room of the Checkers pub in Walthamstow. Ronnie's gun is slung into the nearby River Lee and his clothes are burnt. Confident that any witnesses will hold their tongues, the brothers settle back to await news. At around midnight, a radio news bulletin announces George's death. A relieved Ronnie turns to the firm and says, Always shoot to kill. Dead men can't speak. And neither can the living, it seems. To understand why it seems impossible for police to make any kind of case of the murder of George Cornell, we need to go back to the beginning of this story, 1964, two years before Ronnie Cray pulls the trigger. In July 1964, a detective inspector called Leonard Nipper Reed was called in by his boss, Fred Gerard. Chief Superintendent Gerard asked him to put a team together to bring down the Crays. Despite knowing Nipper's good character, Gerard was surprised when the DI readily agreed to the task without question. 
Even inside the force, there was a sense that going against the gangsters was a pointless task. Many had tried and failed to get anything to stick to them. Nipper, though, greeted the job with enthusiasm. A Navy man during the Second World War, Nipper had learned the true meaning of discipline at sea. Intelligent, with a skill for acting, he almost didn't join the police force at all, thanks to his short stature. There was a minimum height requirement of six foot, but he assured the assessor that he was still growing, and he got in. Thanks to his acting skills, he was quickly moved out of uniform branch and into CID, where he often worked in disguise. After all, no one would think such a short man could be police. Early in his investigation into the Crays and their so-called firm, Nipper realised what a tough gig he'd been assigned. With a number of crimes already attributed to them, Nipper's team, like those who came before them, hit one brick wall after another trying to bring any kind of case. The vice-like grip Ronnie and Reggie Cray had over the East End meant no one would say a bad word against them. Or at least, that's how it seemed. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. None of this deterred Detective Nipper Reed. He boldly set about his digging, making no secret of the fact that he was out to get the Cray twins and destroy their firm. He told anyone who'd listen how close he was to arresting them. Bluff and bravado, sure. But he wanted them to know he was on their tail. In the early days of the investigation, Nipper began hearing about the scale of the Cray's criminal activities. He felt that his best chance of bringing a charge against them was for the protection rackets they'd been running. While searching for anyone brave enough to testify against the brothers, he found a number of their victims who were willing to tell their stories off the record. Of course, there wasn't much help from an evidence point of view, but he could use their accounts to build a list of names and details, all of which he would continue probing. Someone had to crack eventually. All he needed was one strong witness who would stand up and testify in court. A slow and steady process of conversations and interviews with all known associates followed. One potential witness was a man called David Litvinov, a recently disgruntled associate of the Krays and a former friend of Ronnie's in particular. Through his probing, Nipper learned that Litvinov had suffered serious injury at the hands of the Krays, leaving him with scars on his face which needed specialist treatment. Although the man had previously seemed proud of his relationship with the twins, he had run up a sizable debt at Esmeralda's barn, a club in which the Krays had a stake. The debt meant he fell foul of the brothers. The scars on his face, though faint now, 
came from a sword being pushed sidelong into his mouth, cutting his cheeks either side. With an axe to grind, Litvinov seemed like a sure bet, but he flat out refused to testify against the twins. He claimed it was too risky and there was no point. The craze always got away with it anyway. Nipper was more surprised to find a similar attitude in the police. It's not that the craze had specifically corrupted any cops. It was more that no single officer, until Nipper that is, had the gumption to do anything about their activities. Everyone Nipper spoke to seemed well aware of what the craze were up to, often directly attributing a robbery or assault to the gang. But whenever he asked what they'd done about it, the disappointing answer was simply, nothing can be done. No one trusted the police enough to protect them against the craze if they testified. In fact, public perception was that the twins had the police in their pockets and were paying substantial amounts for protection and information. Nipper began to wonder whether the craze were just too big to bring down. Unlike his colleagues though, Nipper saw the craze reputation as a perfectly surmountable hurdle. He just needed to keep digging. Unable to get anything out of the craze victims of violence, Nipper turned to the nightclub owners he believed they were exploiting. The craze, you see, were running protection rackets across London. To shield clubs from trouble, their enforcers would either collect a regular monthly fee, help themselves to bottles of booze, and even demand cash loans to help the twins. Loans which, incidentally, were never paid back. Again, every time Nipper got a half admission from a club owner of a protection racket in place, the accusation would be quickly withdrawn and denied by the time a formal interview rolled around. Dead end after dead end met the team, but Nipper was sure that if you could get enough evidence to arrest the brothers for something, anything, other witnesses would come forward once word got out they were off the streets. Drawing blanks with the nightclubs, Nipper turned to the bookmakers, the other main victims of these security scams. Again, while many admitted they were being squeezed, none would admit that the extortions are coming from the craze. Tired of the stuck record, Nipper changed tack. He organized surveillance teams to observe and monitor every move the twins made. Everyone they visited, everyone who visited them, every place they went, all came under round-the-clock scrutiny. Everyone connected with the craze felt Nipper's finger on their collar and would talk to openly about their connection to the craze. Of course, lips stayed tight, but slowly, Nipper pieced together information which led him to a small breakthrough. At the time, a practice known as long-firm fraud was a fairly lucrative business. A long-firm fraud, or LF, basically saw a company set up to sell, say, toys or dresses or whatever common commodity. Slowly, over several months, the firm built a credit record. Once credit was secured, a very large order for the product of choice was made and then sold off quick at a cut price. Then, the company disappears, taking with it the money of both suppliers and the banks. It was an art form, in a way, and took skilled operators to handle it properly. A well-run LF could easily earn between 100 and 150,000 pounds, nearly 80 times the annual salary of a policeman. 
Because these crimes were investigated by the fraud squad, they hadn't come onto Nipper's radar before. But from a number of the interviews his team conducted, they learned that long firms actually made up the majority of the Cray's income. So Nipper set his teams to start watching the premises of potential long firms that were already under investigation. Setting up and running a successful long firm took a certain kind of character, a bit of a showman. And sometimes these characters got carried away and stepped out of line, meaning the bosses needed to pay a visit and have a little word. Sure enough, relentless observation of both twins eventually saw Reggie going to the premises of a known long firm. After Reggie left, they pulled the guy running the scam in for a chat. Of course, the man completely denied any knowledge of anyone called Cray. Nipper was frustrated again. You're a man who knows the East End of London, he said to the thug. How can you not know the Crays? It's like not knowing the Queen. But the firm boss persisted with his feigned ignorance. And so the story continued for Nipper and his team. The only saving grace was that their dogged determination resulted in over 30 arrests for long-firm fraud, going some way to justify the expense of their operation. The bad news was that not a single arrest led to any solid evidence against the craze. Just when it looked like Nipper's team might be disbanded, they got a call from a detective inspector over in Marylebone, central London. He'd been given information about a club owner in the West End called Hugh McCowan who claimed he'd been pressured by the craze to pay protection money for his hideaway club in Gerrard Street. Well, Nipper didn't need to be asked twice. Heading over to Marylebone, he took a statement from McCown, worried that the club owner might over-egg the story a bit too much, given his flamboyant character. He also took another statement from a young man called Sidney Vaughan, who had managed the club previously. Fortunately, Vaughan, now 21, had a longer and more detailed memory than McCowan and didn't seem afraid to talk about the Cray's involvement in the club's safe operation. With two witness statements on record, Nipper finally felt like he had enough evidence to make some arrests. Gathering a few men, he headed over to the Glen Ray Hotel in North London, where the Cray twins were living. The hotel, owned by a woman called Phoebe Woods, had been taken over by the Crays and their entourage the previous year after they'd intimidated Phoebe and her family into letting them stay. The crazed men now ran the bar, covered the doors, and even occupied a number of the bedrooms. Reggie and Ronnie themselves were staying in rooms one and two, which is where they were arrested. After all the time trying, Nipple was surprised how cordial the arrests were when they finally happened. Reggie simply asked if he could say goodnight to the girl he was with a request which was summarily denied. Ronnie, on the other hand, said nothing. It was only when Nipper gets them down to the station that Ronnie asked, who's it down to? Somebody must have put the finger on us. The hotel owner, Mrs. Woods, seemed incredibly relieved to see the back of her repressive guests. As soon as the craze were arrested, she became hysterical, throwing herself at Nipper's feet and thanking him. She told him through her sobs that all her regular customers had been driven out and the gang owed hundreds on unpaid rooms and bar bills. Take them away and never let me see them again, she sobbed. 
you've saved my life. While this may have been something of an overstatement, Nipper still felt very pleased with a good day's work. But seeing that the woman was so emotional, he decided to leave questioning her at the time and invited her to come down to the station the next day to make her statements. Well, that turned out to be a huge mistake. When she arrived the following morning, Phoebe Woods seemed to have had a dramatic change of heart. She walked in, assured and confident, dressed to the nines, with a fur coat, high heels, and hair all done up. She was almost unrecognizable from the groveling wretch she saw last night. Then she announced she was there to post bail for the craze and insisted that their management of the club was an arrangement she was completely satisfied with. Needless to say, Nipper and his team were not about to let the craze swan off into the sunset just because Phoebe Woods changed her tune. Seeing that he still had two confirmed witnesses in McCown and Vaughan, Nipper pressed ahead with the charges and a bail hearing was set. At the hearing, the craze defence claimed that a simple discussion about McCowan paying a percentage of his takings in return for an investment from the brothers was a far cry from extortion. They said there was no evidence McCowan had been in any way pressured or intimidated by the twins. The magistrate didn't agree, however. Having heard McCowan's evidence, he decided that the craze are more likely to interfere with witnesses in an ongoing investigation if they remain at large and the brothers are remanded in custody until a trial can be heard. Nipper was hoping that, with the craze locked up, cracks would start to appear in that wall of silence. But he couldn't have been more wrong. Every potential witness he tries to pull in says pretty much the same thing. They'll walk, so I'm not talking. Besides, while the craze themselves may have been indisposed for a short while, there were plenty of members of the firm who were still more than happy to do the silencing in their absence. In fact, not only was Nipper struggling to find any dissenting voices, he'd also started to notice that his star witness, Vaughan, was starting to wobble. Sure enough, only a few days later, Vaughan announced he wanted to change his statement, claiming McCowan forced him to testify and was paying him £40 a week to perjure himself. With his best witness, now a hostile one, Nipper felt nervous when the craze were committed to trial at the Old Bailey. As it turns out, his fears were justified. Despite McCown being much more compelling on the stand than Nipper was expecting, the jury failed to reach an agreement and a retrial was immediately scheduled. This second trial proved as ineffective as the first and the defendants were finally released without charge. It was a disaster for Nipper. The craze were back out on the streets, looking more infallible than ever. It would have been better not to charge them at all than have them acquitted and walking free, especially after two trials. On the very same afternoon they were released, the craze bought the hideaway club and held an acquittal party there. Maybe it was sour grapes, but Nipper went along and sat outside with a couple of his officers taking down the names of anyone who went in. The craze may have gotten away once, but he wanted them to know he was not taking his foot off the gas for one minute. With newspaper headlines booming, craze back home, their return to Valance Road was openly celebrated. 
their supporters all but lined up to welcome their triumphant homecoming. Their reputation for evading the law had only been boosted by the trial, and they were full of bravado now. As for Nipper, it was decided that he needed a break. He got sent on a six-month middle management training course. So near, but yet so far from achieving his goal of bringing the craze to justice. But that's by no means the end of the story. Nipper's time away gives him both the experience and understanding he needs to break through that wall of silence. He's just going to have to bide his time. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. It's 1967 and Nipper Reed finds himself with a dream promotion to the legendary murder squad at Scotland Yard. The only caveat to his promotion is that he is charged once again with bringing down the Cray twins and their gang. The problem is the brothers have become more powerful and more ruthless since he last tackled them. Can Nipper finally get the break he needs to dismantle the formidable and fearsome craze? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dorian. Macaulay. 